And welcome to Liberal Dan Radio, Talk from the Left, that's right. Special Thursday night edition, late night, late night with Liberal Dan, so to speak, although it's not the not an adult-themed topic show as one might expect for a late night show to be. No, we're uh, just waiting on uh, Phil Ipner to, to call in over from way over yonder in Ukraine. Uh, he's scheduled to be on the show today, so... Um, See, we got Alarasia, Cynthia, Elizabeth, Kimchi, uh, Aaron, Agnes, Gary, Romper, Stomper, Domper, Do. Oh, there we go. I think we do have Phil on the phone now. So we can just go ahead and start right away. Uh, just remember to, uh, if you haven't subscribed to the channel, subscribe already. If you haven't liked it, like like it. You can always support the show patreon.com slash liberal dan or one time with buy me a cider uh click the buy me a cider button on liberaldan.com or you can always shoot over the venmo link without further ado i believe i'm assuming at least that this should be phil how are you doing today uh good morning dan or i guess late in the evening your time Hello. yes it's good morning to you good evening good night night for for us but you know the, the wonders of the internet allowing us to uh talk Long distances, or like a modern technology, I should say, because this is a phone call. So, um, so how have you been? Are, are things going well for you personally over there? Or? Oh, fine. I mean, we're we're coming up to the one year anniversary, and I'm I'm actually uh, traveling currently uh, this the, this week. I'm I'm not in the capital. I'm not in Kiev. I'm in I'm in Lviv, where I was meeting and and uh, kind of. Uh, doing some work with a children aid uh, group here. Uh, generally, you know, we're generally fine. Uh, there's a lot of anxiety and stress uh, building as we get closer to the one year anniversary, especially with the knowledge that there are hundreds of thousands of Russian conscripts who are um, out in the East, apparently um, getting ready for some sort of major Russian offensive. Right. Uh, that is expected not only to be not only to be on the battlefield, but also we anticipate some sort of um, you know missile strikes and coordinated attacks uh, at some point. Um, right now, whether or not that happens, we don't know. But what we do know is that the Russians have a history and a and a, and a modus operandi of uh, of of using symbolic. Uh, you know, uh, methodology to, to attack. So they do things like when they were, uh, I, I, for example, I'll point to uh, the incident in Odessa when the the Ukrainians struck uh, an oil platform that was used, being used as a naval marine staging area, and they struck it. Right. And in response, the, the Russians sent a hypersonic missile. It was a kind of a, you know, if you're going to do that, we're going to do this. Uh, or, right. um, you know, they will they will use uh, an attack uh, as a way of messaging. And so lots of people are thinking that the 24th, uh, which is you know, swiftly coming up on us, is going to be a moment where the Russians are going to do some sort of attack to to mark that anniversary. Yeah, and uh, some of the things I've read in preparing for the show, there's um, Iran, I guess Russia's using some Iran drones, and they've modified their warheads to try and inflict maximum damage on infrastructure targets. And of course, as we've seen, it probably is not just going to be infrastructure targets, considering that Russia has already been targeting civilian targets, civilian buildings as well. So um, that, I'm sure, will be used in their statement attack, so to speak. Yeah. Well, yes. Uh, there, there are the drones. Uh, the drone threat. Uh, there's also uh, the, the threat that the the Russians might get some more missiles, some kind of Scud size missiles, the the Iskander size uh, missiles. They might launch at cities uh, around Ukraine. Um, you're right. They they haven't been successful in their knocking out of the power grid or civilian infrastructure. Uh, now, much of, of that is down to uh, the Ukrainians being <clears throat> really very diligent and quick in, in um, fixing their power grid whenever it does get hit, 
and also their air defense capabilities are really quite significant, clearly, because they're able to knock out a lot of this stuff uh, before it arrives. Um, and then, and then also the you know, thankfully we've had a relatively mild winter. Now we're not completely through with winter, but this has been a very mild uh, winter by comparison. So the the stress on the power and the heating hasn't been nearly as bad as it could have been if if the winter had been harsher. Um, again, we're not fully out of True. winter, but um, you know it it. It, it could have been a lot worse uh, up up to this point. So um, they may, you're, you know, who knows if they will keep going for the civilian infrastructure or if they will pivot and to, and start attacking um, leadership positions, you know, so the capital comes under fire or whether or not they will just start a terror campaign, which is not beyond them because we've seen them do it. Um, the, the the attack on New Year's Eve, for example, which is a huge holiday uh, in the post-Soviet era because the Soviets tried to you know, destroy everything religious, so they took all the trappings of Christmas and lumped it into New Year's Eve, and to attack on New Year's Eve in the way they did, which was, and I was in Kiev on that day, uh, was, uh, was a terror attack. It was a terror attack. Right. It was just... You, you, there's, there was no reason for what they did except to send a message that you think you're going to have a nice New Year's Eve? Well, you're not. We're going to bomb you. Um, and the surprising thing is, is simply that a terror you have you have the situation where you know, like conservatives over here in America are, are you know trying to say that Zelensky is like anti-religion and and that he's you know he's you know yeah, closing churches or whatever. When in reality, it's Russia that that's the one that's guilty of doing the, the horrible things in, in terms of attacking people's religion and religious beliefs. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Dan, because, you know, it's also, I think listeners should also be aware, and this is, we, I mean, we could really go into the weeds about this and talk about, you know, the, the various Orthodox churches and the divisions between Ukrainian Orthodox and Russian Orthodox, but it's important also to recognize that Russian Orthodox Church, led by Patriarch Kirill in Moscow, I mean, Kirill was a KGB agent, <laughs> Right. It's the the, right. the the Russian Orthodox Church is not simply a church. It's it's an organ of state power. And so there are all these reports of the intelligence services raiding um uh Russian Orthodox churches and finding money, finding propaganda, finding, you know, uh stuff to support uh the separatist movements in the Donbass. Um the the Orthodox Church is 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 not an innocent faith-based, solely faith-based uh, organization. They are, they're with the Kremlin. The, the church, church and state in uh, in Putin's Russia go hand in hand. So it, I, I have heard those criticisms. I've heard the attacks by the conservative religious right in the states, not fully understanding that um, you know the Russian Orthodox Church pushes the Kremlin. And pushes Kremlin talking points and supports and doesn't just do it in terms of you know supporting the the uh, the separatist movements in in Ukraine, but actively supporting them with with money and you know uh, propaganda and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's not as simple as just oh you know Zelensky's attacking religion. He is, I mean the the man is uh, you know he's he's. He's uh, he's a pretty faithful guy. I mean, he's you know Jewish, um, um, but he has been very supportive of of religion within um, Ukraine, whether it's Judaism or Christianity. He's he he you know he's there are the the Ukrainian Orthodox Church isn't nearly as politically active as the as the Russian is, but um, this is a very religious country, and Zelensky knows that shutting down. Um, Orthodox churches um, that that do you know support the faithful uh, would be really counterproductive for him at this point in time. Certainly, I mean we're we're in a war, and a lot of people turn to the church for for support for you know uh, in times of darkness. And Zelensky knows that he he didn't attack the Russian Orthodox Church. He attacked a a, a KGB front. 
uh, right. organization, frankly. So um, I, 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 I resist the uh, – or I, I refute that, that uh, narrative that Zelensky is attacking or trying to shut down religion. It's just not – it's simply not true. For some weird reason, the, the, the Republican Party here in America has become apologists for Russia and Putin, where they used to be, like, gung-ho against. So I don't know what happened with that. It, it's just, I mean, I know what happened with that. It's because Putin wants Trump in there. And so if Putin wants Trump and they want Trump, then I'm my friend, I suppose. Well, and also anything, anything, anything that Biden is going to support, there's an element in the conservative right. right that is going to just counter it simply because Biden has taken a policy in favor of it. They're, you know, they're reactionary. They're, they're, they're really more interested in domestic politics than anything that's actually happening on the ground in Ukraine. Um, they don't, they don't know Ukraine. They don't attempt to try, try and understand Ukraine. It's simply, well, if Biden's for it, we're against it. Right. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's really pathetic, in my opinion. Um, but there, are, but there is also. Um, the factor that, and we don't fully understand this at this point, I don't think, there are fellow travelers. There are people who are really supportive of the kind of world that Vladimir Putin envisions, which is an authoritarian, uh, religious nationalist, Christian nationalist state. Um, cynically, I think Putin doesn't even believe in it himself. He just sees the, he sees religion as a... A, a means to an end, and that is achieving and maintaining power. Um, but then you could say that about much of the Christian nationalist movement in the States as well. So sure. <laughs> um, it, it, I, I think, and, and finally, I, w- I would say also there is the, the very distinct possibility, um, and we've seen it uh, in various sectors, is that they're they're getting direct support from the GRU or the FSB, the, the the Russian intelligence agencies. I mean, have, I mean, we look at Mar- Maria Batina who infiltrated the NRA. We look at um, uh, the the you know the FBI office in in New York where McGregor was compromised by uh, Russian intelligence organs. It, it, we 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 have not fully tackled the idea that Russia is not only an, uh, you know a malign actor or or but they are active they are purposefully and willfully attacking the United States and Putin himself openly said uh, there is there was a there was a there was a, a security conference in St. Petersburg not to go too far back here, but there was a security conference in 2016, the beginning of 2016, well before the election, uh, in which Putin gathered the foreign press corps. And anybody who wants to research it, it's very simple, just, you know, Putin speech, foreign press corps, St. Petersburg, 2016. He gathered together the foreign press corps, and I had colleagues who were there. And it was a very impromptu, very quick thing. They just grabbed the press corps, brought them down into a conference um, meeting room, and there was the president of the Russian Federation. And he was angry. He was furious. Something had ticked him off. And he said, I don't know how many times I have to tell you people, go back to your countries, go back to your capitals. Tell the people that read and listen to your media reports, if you do not stop NATO expansion – or anti-ballistic missile deployment in Europe, I will attack you. He said it openly. He said, I will attack the West if you do not stop NATO expansion and ABM. It was blatant. He openly said it and, and vehemently. He was like saying, I will not tell you how I will attack you, but I will attack you. And then November 2016, the election we right. had Trump. Yep. So we don't fully understand how insidious and how deep um, the Russian um, security and intelligence apparatus is, but we are their primary enemy. It doesn't matter how we think about that. It's important for us to get into the, their headspace. And their headspace is America, as the head of the NATO alliance, is our primary enemy, and we must do everything that we can to undermine them. We can't take them on openly in the battlefield, but we can do 
um, psychological warfare. We can do, um, you know, we can undermine their security. We can, you know, put in place our our intelligence officers, and and make no doubt about it, the Russians are very very good at that. Uh, they they hit they are they hit I would say they hit above their weight, but they don't. They're actually they they've they've cultivated this weapon of theirs uh, to be a really precise, dangerous threat, and they under they mean us harm. The the, the Russian state means the United States harm. Do not make any doubt about it. Right. Um, it's not about right. what we do. They, that's a default position for them. They see us as their primary enemy, and they act accordingly. It, frustra- it frustrates me so much when we only look at it through an American prism because we don't get into their heads. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter what whatever actions we take, whatever sta- you know, stance we take, whatever you know, geopolitical ideals that we might have or designs that we may have. It doesn't matter because the Kremlin and the GRU and much of the Russian state and the leadership perceives America as their primary enemy and they consider themselves at war with us. It, they think they're at war with us. And, well, you know, this has been going on for well before the February invasion of, la- of this year, um, or oh, well, last year now, um, because they, they, they really they come to the conclusion that they're at war with us and they're attacking and they're, and they're, um, uh, they're behaving accordingly. So we need, to get our, we need to get out of this idea that they are reactionary. They are right. pro. They're proactive. They are attacking us. Um, and now with this war in Ukraine, you know it's it's now coming. In, it's now openly on the surface. And you know with the more and more weapon systems that we send in here, the tanks, the heavy weaponry, the um, you know potential for even jet fighters, it's we're we're shaving away the veneer. Um, that this isn't an open conflict, but I would argue that it takes two to tango and the Russians are, are not um, without agency. The Russians right. have decided long ago that, that they were going to attack the United States um, in any way that they possibly can. And we need to get, we need to get a wrap our heads around the fact that um, it isn't just what we do. It's what the Kremlin has already got its designs on. Now you mentioned the fighter jets and how you know um, Zelensky has been trying to get the F-16s or other other forms of fighter jets in there so they can have try and fight for some air superiority. Um, I've heard some things where they might F-16s might not be as great um, against things like Russian fifth generation fighters, but then again, Russia hasn't put deployed any of its fifth generation fighters so far over Ukraine uh, simply because of the fact that I think they're afraid that. If, if Ukraine happens to knock one down with some surface-to-air missiles, or and or you know, the, you know, some of the technology then gets seen, that they don't want to risk that potential loss. So, do you think that that might continue, or do you think that Putin might commit some of its newer generation fighters against um, the F-16s if when if and when Zelensky manages to get them and get them in the air? I think I think that uh, we have to look at the various capabilities of the various militaries involved here. So there's the Ukrainian, the Russian, and the U.S. Um, you're right. The the uh, our fourth generation fighters, uh, the F-16 in particular, um, is is not a, necessarily a superior aircraft. I mean, it's a it's a very good aircraft. It's very the F-16 is, is very good, but then so are, say, the Sukhoi 27s that the Russians have. Um, the, the Russians have a very capable air force. It's one of the sections of their military that's, um, that's pretty impressive. Their fighter jet program uh, is, is significant. Um, and uh, you're right, maybe they don't deploy it because now we're talking about the Ukrainian military. The Ukrainians have, as I mentioned earlier, very strong air defense capability. So do they want to send their, their, their finest uh, fighter jets over territory that still has a, a 
quite sufficient uh, air defense? Probably not. Um, but uh, if the F-16 were to come into play, would that force their hand? I, you know, I don't know. It, Zelensky, I don't think, is calling for uh, the fourth generation fighters for air combat. We're not going to see dogfights over Ukraine, I don't think. Of course, it's entirely possible that we, that we would. But Zelensky wants the F-16s primarily for an offensive capability in, in kind of close air support. Uh, he wants to control the skies, as he says. Um, and that's been something that the Ukrainians have been asking for for quite some time. But, you know, what's amazing is that we are now almost at the one-year anniversary, and Russia doesn't have air superiority here, which is something the United States and NATO doctrine dictates we do from you know the very, very beginning of any kind of conflict. Um, the, the F-16, it's, it's an interesting quandary. It really uh, – we'll, we'll see what happens. The polls have said that they would be willing to um, send in uh, – uh, their F-16s uh, that have been uh, bought or granted to them by NATO. Uh, there's open talks of you know training Ukrainian pilots on NATO uh, F-16s or you know fourth generation stuff, both in Poland and now in Great Britain following Zelensky's visit this week. Um, it's it's another asset that the Ukraine the Ukrainians are going to ask for everything that they can possibly get. Let's just let's just establish that from the beginning mm-hmm. here. They're going to ask for everything because this is this is an existential battle for them. They they if they lose this fight, they lose sovereignty for God knows how long. Uh, you know, if if ever this you know this could be uh, this is a colonial um, uh, power grab. Uh, by by Russia, Russia is trying to re-exert, re-exert its imperial might. Uh, this is this goes back to Taras Shevchenko in the 19th century. This goes back to you know the anti-Ukrainian language laws that the Tsars imposed in the 19th century. This is not about NATO or denazification. This is an existential threat for Ukraine. So they're going to ask for every single piece of kit that they can get their hands on, and it's the it's the, it's the thing of you know. Ask for everything that you can get your hands on, and if you get, you know, 70% of it, um, well, you you go to war with the 70% that you've been granted. Uh, So they're going to ask for F-16s. They're going to ask for Abrams. They're going to ask for Leopards. They're going to ask for Patriot missile systems. And, you know, the West has to decide, and in many ways I think they've already decided, you know, how much are we willing to um, put on the line for this country defending itself from this aggressor state? And where are our mutual interests and all of that? Uh, I would argue that um, Ukraine, you know, deserves to be um, sovereign and um, and would be a very strong part of a Western alliance and would promote uh, democracy, d- despite the very serious challenges that face this country in terms of you know, corruption and, and all the rest of it. But we should support a democracy that is fighting against the system. I lived in Russia. I know what it's like to live under, under Russian rule, and it's not good. It's not good. And if we let them get Ukraine, make no doubt about it. Poland will be next. Western Europe will be next. Even if it, if, even if it is in a military assault, they will use those intelligence and those security uh, weaponry. You know that that kind of those assets and the capability they have against. They'll undermine French democracy. They'll undermine. They've already undermined democracies around the world. I argue that the UK Brexit referendum was influenced by by Russian, um, uh, you know, intelligence. Um, there's a there's a parliamentary a UK parliamentary report that for some reason has is continually delayed in being revealed to the public um, about that very issue. Um, we don't know how insidious um, Russia's security organs are. Um, and they will 
if they if they get Ukraine and are able to put their thumb on Ukraine as they have done in the former Soviet Republic of Georgia, um, they will they'll expand. They, you, we might we might not see Russian tanks rolling down the Champs Elysees, but um, they'll they'll get Le Pen as as uh, French Prime Minister um, if they if they can do it they'll do it. So Putin's Russia is a real threat. 100%. Right. Make no doubt about it. It is a real threat. And um, if, if the alternative to having Ukrainians fight this war for their own independence might be very well that we see a direct confrontation between NATO and Russia, and that ratchets things up significantly. So I argue for support of Ukraine, but obviously I might have a, I might have a dog in that fight because I do love this country very much with good reason. Now we um, had. Now, I, think, yeah, I saw a few weeks back that um, you had the situation of Netanyahu. Like a few weeks back, or maybe like a month ago, when Netanyahu like kind of tried to stick his nose in. I guess after he just resumed being the head of uh, the head of the Israeli Parliament again, or whatever, the Prime Minister. Um, did anybody ask that you know of Netanyahu to stick to come in? You know. Do we think that you know Netanyahu is a clean actor here, or 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 what do you think his motives were that if if you know? Well, we don't really know, but Netanyahu and Israel in general actually uh, is is in a weird position because they have a lot of both Ukrainian and Russian emigres. Um, there's a long history uh, of in stage Soviet citizens leaving uh, of Jewish uh, heritage going to Israel. And there's a, I mean, if you walk down the streets of Jerusalem or, or Tel Aviv, you hear Russian as much as you hear Hebrew or, you know, English. There was a time where you walked down and you would hear a lot of English because of uh, American Jewish immigrants to, to Israel. But now, you know, in the post-Soviet space, you hear a lot of Russian. So the Knesset and, uh, you know, the leadership in Israel is, is stuck in a very precarious situation because they have both Ukrainian and Russian immigrants who are also, by the way, very powerful and wealthy. Not exclusively, but there's a, there's a percentage. Um, the, the question of whether Netanyahu could be, say, a negotiator, an arbitrator of uh, peace in, in this conflict, I don't know. I, I, I'm skeptical because Netanyahu comes with a lot of baggage uh, he is, you know, he's a war hawk. He's a he's a far right, um, uh, you know, leader in in um, Israel, and so he's he might be coming to the table with an agenda. And a lot of people have reservations about that here in uh, Ukraine. There's been talk of maybe Israel providing weaponry, and that would, you know, that would spoil relations between Israel and the Kremlin. But that has hasn't really come to fruition. But I don't know if Israel is the right body to be pursuing uh, some sort of negotiated peace here. There's, you know, other nation states have been floated, like Brazil, uh, as a member of the BRICS community. The what is that? Um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, South Africa. That that body. I mean, the South Africans, as a matter of fact, have come under criticism because. They're, they're planning on naval exercises off the coast of Africa. So who could arbitrate? Who could, what body could come in and act as a neutral um, negotiator? I don't know. But Netanyahu, I don't, I don't see that happening. Um, as, somebody, as somebody myself who is Jewish and who, who has to, you know, who, who's, you know, has known and watched the Israeli issues very, very long time, I think that Netanyahu would have to prove that he could you know, generate peace in his own backyard before trying to worry about negotiating peace in other people's backyards. Agreed. Agreed, 100%. Let's see. So we had the other uh, other things that, are, that have come up. There was um, – we had – I was reading something that's maybe a little bit older, but there were situations where you have – um, like family members who are on opposite sides of the war, like a father who 
who went to fight with uh, one of the, I guess, the Russian backing separatist forces versus the son who is who had decided to volunteer and fight to defend Steve and then also defend, you know, sign up for the Ukrainian military. Um, you have uh, one of the people in the chat brought up the fact that you have um, people who are here who uh, who are Russian from Ukraine but have you know, kind of get the Russian background or whatever and who don't necessarily believe that what's going on and like for example this father's son article that I read the son was saying look Russia is attacking these civilian targets and the dad's like no they're not you're wrong and he's like I've seen it and it's like that's just propaganda and a lot of people following you know a lot of these new things believing it and do you see a lot of that over there of people you know, where, where you have these divided families, is that is that a, a thing that happens a lot, or is that just kind of a sensationalized thing that the media kind of do to be like, oh, there's families fighting on both sides, almost like, you know, brother versus brother in the Civil War, where you had, like, a, a, some cases of that. Yeah, I, it, I want to be very careful when I talk about this, because I don't want to support the narrative coming out of Moscow that this is a civil war. Because you know, get your you got to get your head around the fact that that right. Moscow sees Ukraine. Yeah, Moscow sees Ukraine as part of its empire, and so uh, much like say the British in Ireland, um, you know, when Ir- Irish nationalism and the uh, and the pursuit of a independent, free Irish republic, the London was under the impression of like, well, no, you're part of us. You're you're, you, we are you, you are us. Uh, this is, you know, so they, that idea uh, is so uh, anathema to Moscow and Moscow's mentality that they would consider this in many ways a civil war. It is not. Ukraine has a separate uh, history. It has a separate uh, cultural identity. It has a separate language. There's all sorts of differences between Ukraine. Ukraine knows that it's European. Russia doesn't know if it's Western or Eastern or what it is. Um, and those are distinct differences. So I don't want to go down the road or give support to the idea that there's some kind of civil war. What I equate this with, then, is a marriage. This, this, there has been a, a forced marriage between Ukraine and Russia for centuries. And now... Um, uh, you know, to go into the the roles of you know wife and husband, the the battered wife in the role of Ukraine uh, or Ukraine in the role of the battered wife has deci- has packed her bags and she has you know got one foot out the door, and Russia and and there's a boyfriend in the form of of NATO who's you know out there, uh, and Russia has taking the abuse of, uh, you know, the abused wife and is beating her around the neck saying, I'm going to teach you how to love me again. That kind of, that's the, that's, the, the, but also let's keep in mind that this marriage has existed for centuries and the, and the cross, the, the, the relationship is such that there's a lot of, of cross uh, pollinization, I guess I would say. Um, yes, you see people, um, in Russia, calling their Ukrainian relatives, and their Ukrainian relatives are saying I, we're being bombed, and they're saying no, no, it's not true. Um, that's all propaganda. And the Ukrainians, uh, literally, I've spoken to Ukrainians who said, you know, I put my phone out the window so they could hear the bombing, and, and even then they stuck their heads in the sand. Now, when it comes to the separatists um, right on the Donbass. Um, that gets a little bit more tricky because there are people who um, support being in alignment with Moscow. Donbass is, I've been out to Donbass. Donbass is very odd. It's not, it's not that they want to be part of Russia. They don't want to be, they're they kind of, I don't, what, what the, equa- the equivalency in the United States might be the kind of Appalachian, you know, uh, you know, the, the folks up in the mountains in the holler who, you know, just leave us alone. We don't want to be part of any federal government. Just let us be that kind of, that kind of mentality. The, the, the Donbass is as much against Moscow's um, uh, dominance as they are Kiev's. They just, they want to be their own thing. 
but yes, there are those who, you know, will fight against the authority of Kiev out in Donbass. Um, whether or not that means they're they're pro Moscow or not is debatable. But th- there are a lot of interests and a lot of history here. This is this is Dan. You got <laughs> this. This part of Europe is steeped in blood. It is soaked in blood of generations and centuries of cross cross traffic of various empires using this stretch of land, um, the the stretch of land between the Baltic. Um, the the uh, Adriatic and the Black Sea, that little triangle, that that has been some of the most contested territory in the world. It's densely populated. Is Europe, uh, you know, the demographics of Europe, uh, people bump up against one another and they fight. And this part of this part of Europe is soaked in blood and has history that is so dense. I've been studying it for 25 years, and I only still feel like I've scratched the surface. The, the, there's a lot of history here and a lot of alliances and a lot of motivations. Um, but part of this war is actually trying to draw that history to maybe not a close. People are always going to live with that history, but come to a place where we don't fight over this territory anymore. And it's going to hopefully turn a, turn a major chapter in European history. Um, but But there's a lot of blood and a lot of history here that contributes to what motivates people. So it's a roundabout way of saying it's messy. Now, earlier in the conversation, we were talking about how the Russians may very well try and do a symbolic type of attack when it comes to, you know, the anniversary of the year, the anniversary of their first uh, attacks in, in here, official attacks in here, because, you know, they've been, you know, messing around with it for years. Right. But the, um, you know, do you think that is Bakhmut going to be part of that, or is that because that's something that's separate? No, I think Bakhmut will definitely be part of it. Um, it looks like the way that Russia is arraying its troops, it looks like they're going to try a three-pronged attack, which is, you know, it's a, a tried-and-tested uh, way of launching an offensive. They're going to do a north, central, and south Assault. The north being potentially around Kharkiv, the center being around Bakhmut, and the south being around Kherson. Um, Bakhmut has been an absolute killing ground. There's a lot of question as to what is the motivation for Bakhmut and how important is Bakhmut in terms of it being a logistical hub. Um, I, I, having spoken to military observers here, mo- former monitors who, who used to monitor out in, in that stretch of land, uh, and I have spoken about how important militarily Bakhmut is, and I, I am of the camp that it's not particularly militarily important, but it seems to be a, a, a target that the Russians have set their sights on, and they are determined to take it, legitimately or not, strategically important or not. And so the Ukrainians, in response, have said, if you want to die, if this is the hill you want to die on, then okay. And it gets to, the, it gets to this kind of existential thought um, experiment of like, well, so now are the Ukrainians locked into Bakhmut uh, as well? Or is this now for, you know, right or wrong, um, strategically, this has become a hammer and anvil um, kind of, uh, you know, situation. And, you know, either the hammer is going to break or the anvil is going to break. You know, you strike a hammer against an anvil long enough, the, the, the you know, the anvil will break. Uh, so, the, you know, does, it, does Russia really need to seize Bakhmut? Or have they just got the bit between their teeth and they're determined to take it? There's also talk, of course, that Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner group, is trying to get it as a trophy to take back to, to Moscow. But one way or the other, um, both sides are locked in in Bakhmut. And the, as I say, the Ukrainian, for whatever reason, the Russians are determined to take Bakhmut. And for their part, the Ukrainians have decided, okay, if this is, you know, if this is where you want to send your soldiers to die. And it's just wave upon wave of Russians trying to take Bakhmut for some reason. And so the Ukrainians are killing wave upon wave of Russians. And, you know, Bakhmut's a very sad 
tragic um, and and disturbing on so many different levels battle, um, but it has become a major battle. Now, look, Dan, going back to the beginning of this war, so we're almost in the one-year anniversary. Look, look on your retrospective. They did the same thing in Mariupol. Months and months and months of trying to take Mariupol, and they just, the Ukrainians dug in, and they delayed Russian advances. You know, Russia could have encircled Mariupol and then moved uh, westward, but they didn't. They they were determined to take Mariupol, and the Ukrainians made them do it at a very high cost, not only to the battle in Mariupol itself, it stymied the advance of the Russians because they became fixated on it. So in, in many ways, we're seeing that in, in Bakhmut as well. Um, it, they, they have called up, they've now had three mobilizations in Russia. And um, will, they, will they call up even more? Because Russia's military doctrine, as sad as it is throughout the history, you know, you know, history reveals it. Other things that Russia's military doctrine is very different than ours, and their military doctrine, um, you know, not exclusively, but by and large, is you soften stuff up with artillery, and then you just send young men. You just throw young men at at the lines, and it's an asset that Russia has in abundance, and so they they have no compunction about just sending young men to die. Uh, and will the hundreds of thousands of conscripts overwhelm Ukrainian defenses before the Western weapon systems could get online? And I, I believe, I argue, that Russia will not, even if they launch their major offensive today, and some people say they already have in the initial kind of artillery state of offensive, but even if they would launch a full-scale flood of conscripts, hundreds of thousands crashing on Ukrainian positions, they don't have the time to get to the capital before the weapon systems are here. Hmm. Now, some of the um, some of the people that have been conscripted, if I'm correct about it, is they have uh, they've taken uh, like prisoners too, like like especially the guy that wants to, you know, the the head of that one military unit they want. He wants to wants to, you know, show that hey, this is a trophy to bring back to Putin and, and show up, hey, I'm doing all this wonderful stuff here. If I'm right, they've like taken prisoners and basically said, Hey, we'll promise you some freedom or pardons if you go ahead and fight this war, but basically they haven't really trained him. They just said, Hey, here's a gun, go fight. Uh, that's that's uh, a, a group called the Wagner Group. It's uh, named after Hitler's fav- uh, favorite uh, composer, which gives you a little insight. Right. Uh, it's uh, Valery Prigozhin. Uh, he is uh, often con- at times referred to as Putin's chef because he kind of made his millions in Putin's Russia by doing uh, catering um, um, corporations. He set up a variety of hospitality and catering and that kind of stuff. And he's a buddy of Putin's from way back in the day. So he's referred to as Putin's chef. He started a mercenary group called the Wagner Group. Uh, It is uh, a a very uh, disturbing group. Uh, Their their operations around the world have been, I mean, if you read up on some of their actions in, say, the Central African Republic or places like that, their activities have been brutal, to say the least. And he start um, uh, recruiting from inside Russian prison, saying, you know, if you go and you fight, we'll commute your sentence. Rapists, murderers, all that kind of stuff. I mean, the worst of the worst. Given an AK-47, not just, but let's just say, for sake of argument here, you know, just give them a weapon, point them in the direction of the front, and who cares? Because you're a prisoner, you were going to be, you were going to rot away in a Russian prison and probably die there of tuberculosis. So, better that you, you know, die for the motherland. Uh, and even that, actually, you, you know, when you get captured, guys from the Wagner Group um, will say, you know, we, if we'd known what it was like here, we would have stayed in prison. Prigozhin is. Uh, officially said that he's going to cancel that program. He is no longer going to be taking from from prisons. But 
it's it still reveals where Russia's mindset is, and and the Wagner Group in particular, but Russia by and large, they just just any kid, or, well, not just kid, but any man that can carry a weapon, just throw him in a position. So there's one other quick thing about the Wagner Group I want to mention. And also trying to understand, um, uh, there, in Russia, there is an organized crime culture. There's an entire um, subculture within Russia that has a, a, an organized crime um, mentality similar to, like, I would say the Yakuza, although not, I'm not an ex- expert on Japan or the Yakuza, but from what I understand, of or the triads in, in China, or maybe even to a certain extent the Mafia or the Cosa Nostra in Sicily. It, the, it's, it's an entire substrata. It's an entire culture um, in, in Russia where there is a <clears throat> command structure. So, you know, the, the, the kind of what they call the roof, the Krisha, the, the guy who takes care of everybody else and then it kind of goes down the, 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 the hierarchy within the criminal organized crime um, family. Th- those guys, those guys will follow what their um, their criminal overlord tells them what to do. So there's a, there, I'm sure, a strata of that that was sent um, to the front lines. <clears throat> the the other final thing to say about that kind of aspect of this war is that indeed some of those guys uh, did come to Ukraine, fight for I believe it was a nine month contract. And then they got sent back to Russia. So I don't see any potential um, risk in giving a bunch of rapists and murderers, um, you know, wartime experience and then send them back to a, a tiny village in Russia. I don't see where there would be a problem with that whatsoever. I mean, come on. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm right. obviously being sarcastic. But, you know, what if, we, what if we went to San Quentin, grabbed a bunch of the worst of the worst, took them over for some, you know, military – endeavor that the United States had, gave them a weapon, said, do whatever you want to do, let them loose and let them satiate their, their, the worst of their instincts, and then said, oh, yeah, thanks for that. Now, uh, you know, come on back to Des Moines. You don't have to go back to San Quentin. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. It's, it is absolutely crazy. But Russia, Russia sees these things very, very different than, than Western liberal democracies. Um, it's... It's a uh, it's really uh, it's a bad situation. No two ways around it. In the chat, we do have somebody who asked. Kinky Street asked, um, "How uh, how was Russia able to fortify the? I might murder this, but the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant she's taken it over. That would require a good amount of planning, delivering materials, and a lack of war in the area. So, do you know anything about how they were able to do that?" Yeah, Zaporizhia and the Zaporizhia uh, nuclear power plant is a, a tricky one because there there seems to have been some collusion uh, in the region by um, Ukrainians who may have been corrupt. Maybe they had actual uh, solidarity with Moscow and wanted that, things to go that way. But one way or the other, the region was compromised. Uh, and the, the Russians were able to move in there quite quickly. But when they took the power plant, they found that um, they didn't have the engineers. There weren't Russian engineers that could easily be slotted into the Ukrainian Zaporizhia power plant, even though it was, uh, you know, it was a, basically a Soviet power plant. But for a variety of different reasons, um, they they didn't have Russian nuclear uh, engineers that could be slotted in in Zaporizhia, so they had to use um, Ukrainian uh, guys. Um, it's Zaporizhia is still a very troubling and tricky situation. Um, it's one of Europe's largest nuclear power plants. If something were to go wrong there, or if there was a, a airstrike or an artillery strike, you're basically looking at a dirty bomb. And you know radioactive material being spewed out it's still it's still highly contested it's still um 
it's a delicate situation. And as this offensive or whatever happens, the offensive on the Russian side or the counteroffensive on the Ukrainian side, uh, when it comes to Zaporizhia, it's going to have to be um, handled with extreme care. But I know people that, that go down there and they give um, – I have a, a, a guy that I know who's a chef, and he goes down there and he feeds soldiers on the front, on the front lines in Zaporizhia. It seems to me, from what he tells me, going down there and spending time with the troops, that that the power plant is a major consideration, but Zaporizhia is also a very active front line. So you're trying to balance these two things, of of seizing the territory of Zaporizhia, that region of Zaporizhia, without perhaps drawing the power plant into direct conflict, but then the Russians also use the, the power plant as a place, as a staging area, knowing very well that there's this consideration. They'll put you know, tanks and stuff there to stage from. So the Ukrainians aren't gonna the Ukrainians aren't gonna blow up Zaporizhia power plant. That would be that would be suicide. It would be it would be a ridiculous thing for a country to explode a nuclear power plant on its own territory. It's it's tricky. I I wish I had a better answer that would you know say, well this is a solution to that problem. But tragically, I don't, um, and that's a big problem. What do we do about Zaporizhia power plant? Uh, and and you know the the Ukrainians are going to try and seize back Zaporizhia Oblast, which is just a fancy you know Russian term for province, without directly drawing in that power plant, and that is going to be a very delicate thing that's that's going to have to be managed, you know, and and being delicate in a war is you know, counterintuitive. So it's a deep concern. We should all be concerned about it. Um, how it will be resolved is, uh, it's one of those things where it's a wait and see. Right. Now, uh, it was, I think it was today that it, the news came out, maybe some of the worst kept secret or the worst kept, you know, I don't I guess worst kept secret, one of them about, what has gone on over there in Ukraine was SpaceX finally admitted that they shut off the uh, satellite uh, uh, Starlink so that uh, they couldn't use it for communications uh, during during their organization during the initial stages of their, their defending themselves. Uh, has that gotten over there at all? And have have there been have you heard any rumblings or responses from people over there? You know, pissed off at Elon or anything like that for what happened, or have they already pissed off because? He seems like he's coming at it from a pro-Putin position already. Dan, you're you're breaking off uh, up an awful lot. How am I to you? Uh, you were you were fine, I guess. You're a little bit broke up a little bit before, okay. but I guess it's back and forth. But uh, anyway, so to repeat the question, okay. uh, it, it had come out no, no, that you're, you're, uh, asking about, you're asking me about Starlink and Musk. Um, yeah, Musk has said that he is going to shut off Ukrainians capability to use the Starlink and for those who don't know what the Starlink is it's a, it's a mobile um, uh, high-speed internet uh, satellite system uh, you can take it anywhere and you can get really high-speed internet in the middle of a forest somewhere and the Ukrainians have been using it to connect with their drone system and drones have changed the face of this war and will change war going forward um, and part of that is uh, geolocating geolo- uh, capabilities connected to the Starlink. So you can use a drone connected to a Starlink to do artillery, um, you know, to, to t- artillery targeting by using geolocation. So you, you send a drone up, it travels for a couple of miles maybe even, and it spots a Russian artillery position, and then you triangulate using the drone, and you can strike that Russian artillery position. Musk has said that the Starlink system was only to be used in terms of like command and control and logistics. He didn't want to be it to be used as an offensive weapon. Um, Musk's history in this entire conflict has been uh, rather controversial. He threatened to turn off the Starlink if Ukraine did start. Um, he originally offered it for free and then a couple of months down the road said, no, you've got to start paying. Everybody balked at that. He rescinded as Musk is in his wishy-washy way, his want to do. 
Um, but uh, he has now said he's going to shut off the, the drone system. Now, Musk is... Musk is a tricky figure because he, you know, he's a fluent Russian speaker. He's he's indicated that he does have some sympathies towards, uh, you know, Russian interests, and uh, he is he's not, um, he's not. Uh, well, he's not pro-Putin. He's not exactly anti-Putin. He doesn't he doesn't recognize the threat from Putin or recognize him as a malign actor. Um, but you know, this is Musk. Musk is a is a is a very troubling individual with a disproportionate amount of power, uh, in my opinion. So, um, but yes, he he has shut off he shut off that capability for the drones. But the Ukrainians are pretty resourceful, and they're pretty resourceful when it comes to their drone fleet. They're using it to even like drop you know mortar shells on on our you know they're taking commercial drones and and retrofitting them to drop grenades on Russian soldiers. Uh, they're also developing their own drones. So uh, I don't see that as being a major like tactical or strategic loss uh, losing the Starlink. But um, you know it just it shows how unreliable a, a an actor um, Musk is because he will, he is, he will follow his own designs. And uh, if he contradicts himself from one week to the next, then so be it. And uh, that makes him an unreliable partner in any, you know, any war fighting, frankly, anything at all. But, you know, if you're fighting for your very life, do you want to rely on a guy who one week is going to say, I'll do this. And then the next week he's going to say, no, I'm going to do the other. So Musk is not exactly um, admired or respected or appreciated here in Ukraine. Yeah, I can't. I would imagine not. Uh, somebody said that uh, that Musk probably gets his uh, aluminum for his Teslas from Russia, so he, that's why he's probably taking a more pro-Putin side. I'm sorry, say again, Dan. Uh, someone in the chat base had said that maybe that because. Um, uh, Musk gets aluminum from Russia for his Teslas, so that that might be why he is taking uh, oh, sure. a more Russian side. Just, yeah, not not just not just aluminum, but there's also other natural resources and 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 hard metals that uh, uh, Musk relies on. You know, nickel. Uh, the the vast majority of nickel comes from uh, Russia, and that might be a factor as well. Uh, you know, Musk is mercurial. Let's put it that way. Um, and uh, he's, you know, there's there a lot of people in Russia are very uh, appreciative of Musk. So is he? He is giving Starlink, uh, and the, the Ukrainians are very grateful for that. Um, but is he really? Is he on a side, or is he on his own side? I I would argue that he is pursuing his own interests and. Um, you know, that is it is what it is. Now, one of the people in chat asked the question. I probably no, but because um, because it happened on the southern edge of Turkey by uh, by Middle East, uh, further away from there. Was there any impact of the earthquake? Was there anybody who felt the earthquake that took place in Turkey across the Black Sea into uh, Ukraine? Oh, I have no doubt that there were people probably on the southern shore of, of Ukraine around Odessa that probably felt so. And I'm a, look, I'm a San Franciscan. I, I lived through the Loma Prieta um, earthquake. I know what a, a major – that was a 7.2, and I believe what Turkey was a 7.8. Mm -hmm. uh, and on the Richter scale, each point is a factor of 10, I believe. There's no doubt in my mind that people along the shores of the Black Sea, including Ukraine, felt felt the – the earthquake. There was no damage here in Ukraine. Uh, there was a lot of there was a lot of sympathy uh, because looking at those images, that could be Mariupol. You know, some of those those you know some of those um, those towns in, in in Turkey and Syria look very similar to what we see out in the war zone. Uh, there was also, of course, some people who were pretty irresponsible in their comments coming from uh, Ukraine because of kind of Turkish tacit support for some of the things that Russia are doing. But the earthquake itself didn't have any effect in Ukraine. Impressively, uh, while we're on the topic, I mean, Ukraine did send rescue crews. Uh, 
in the middle of this war, they 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 um, you know diverted uh, manpower um, by sending uh, search and rescue ch- crews, who are of course very experienced by this time here in Ukraine, to to aid in Turkey. So that that was impressive to me. Um, but to answer the the question in the chat, uh, there was no real damage or. Um, there was no bad effect to Ukraine, even though, yes, they, in the Black Sea, I'm sure they felt it. Um, yes, we're kind of ending up on, on the questions that I have uh, for you. Do you uh, have any, uh, any more uh, points you want to make before we kind of wrap this up? Sorry, again, we're having... We're having gremlins in the system here, Dan. I'm, I'll try and get a better signal here. Move closer to. You want to relay that again? Basically, I was just saying I've I've run out of things that I want to ask about in the current show. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add before we went ahead and wrap this up for the night or for your morning? Well, no. I I I think the only thing I would uh, mention is that uh, 2023 is going to be uh, a, a defining um, year in this conflict. And hopefully, we all hope, I, 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 I believe in the goodness of people, so I hope that everybody wants to see a conclusion of this war in 2023. I myself would like to see a Ukrainian victory, but at the end of the day, the important thing is to end the war. I would, I would warn the audience, however, and I would tell the audience to gird itself to gird itself for some very disturbing imagery coming out of Ukraine. This is, this is going to be the, when the winter is fully over and the fighting intensifies, offensives, counter-offensives, we're, just get ready. Um, we're going to see a lot of tragedy and a lot of blood and a lot of fighting and violence, and it's going to be incredibly disturbing. And it will, for all people who have empathy, um, uh, drive them to demand for a close of this war. Everybody wants a close to this war, no more so than the, the people of Ukraine, myself you know, included. I'm here in Ukraine. I want this war to end. But the war must end with a firm understanding that Russia can never come back here and try and seize even more territory, because they will. They, again, they see this place as the crown jewel in their empire. This is a colonial asset for them. So when, when you see the disturbing images of the war to come in 2023, as much as it may motivate you to just say, shut it down, no matter what, let's just stop the fighting, everybody here in Ukraine wants that too. But they want a just peace, and they want a, a peace that can be sustained. And if Russia is not fully um, dissuaded of their aspirations to control this sovereign nation, They'll keep coming back. So as disturbing as this war is going to be in 2023, um, the Ukrainians are willing to fight the war and even lose all the people that they're going to lose if it means centuries and you know, decades and centuries of freedom and uh, being able to build their sovereign, sovereign country. So um, I would just ask people to steal their resolve and um, stand with the Ukrainians and uh, hopefully, uh, through a victory, a longer, more sustainable peace can come. One can only hope. Well, I do want to thank you again for coming on the show. I'll definitely have you back sometime soon, maybe next month or two, um, around my, uh, my vacation schedule. I'm going to have a few weeks off here and there. So, um, but definitely look forward to having you back again. I've shared your Twitter account link on the YouTube chat. And again, stay safe over there. And and, uh, I thank you for all it is that you're doing over here and for helping to educate the people over here about what's going on over there. Thank you, Dan. All the best. All right. You have a great, great, have a good day. Thank you, Dan. Good night. All right. Good night. All right. And that was Philip Idner, uh, thankfully showing up and uh, being safe and being able to give us a, a very good education about what's going on over there uh, in Ukraine. And um, again, we will have him back again at some point in the near future to, to give us updates. And um, shout out to Hal for having him on too, because I wouldn't have known about uh, uh, Phil if it wasn't for Hal. So 
Um, and then that's how that connection was made as well. So I want to thank everybody for uh, listening today, uh, watching on the YouTube channel. If you haven't subscribed yet, please make sure to subscribe. This should be a relatively good video to share out too once it's live and not the live one, but once it's the one you can share, just share this video. If, if people need to know what's going on in Ukraine, if you have people who are doubting the facts of what's going on in Ukraine, share this video with them. And then I guess have them also subscribe here to me. That's the best and cheapest way you can support me. You could also become a Liberal Dan Radio patron. If you want more shows like this, more extra episodes like this, the best way to do it is, is to subscribe to the Patreon monthly as low as $5. Um, you could also buy me a cider. Click LiberalDan.com. Click the Buy Me a Cider button. Support me there. And, of course, um, you can demo me as well. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining me for this late-night episode of Liberal Dan Radio. Talk from the left, that's right. Uh, I will be doing a Twitch stream on Tuesday, um, twitch.tv slash nerdydan.com. And Wednesday is the regularly scheduled show, um, which I think is going to be technically the last show of the month because the next week I'll be on a cruise and the week after is March 1st. So unless I happen to fit in a different show, but the regularly scheduled shows next week is the last regularly scheduled one. So make sure to tune in there. Make sure to follow me all the different places I am. Liberal Band Radio on Twitter, uh, Facebook.com slash Liberal and Facebook.com slash Liberal Radio. Uh, subscribe to YouTube, share some videos. Anyway, thank you so much, everybody, for joining. Have a great night.